Consuls General, Professor Fleischer, ladies and gentlemen. This is a uh, grand occasion. I want to first to address those of you in the audience who are students. You will have the responsibility as future intellectual and political leaders of this country and the countries from which you come uh, to do a better job than this generation of leaders has done in both governing international relations and thinking through clearly what the national interest of our country is and the countries which you ultimately choose to serve. And what I recommend to you as an approach to do that successfully is the profound use of empathy in your thinking about international relations. And the reason this is a grand occasion today is that we have had the opportunity to hear uh, from three masters of international relations from a profoundly different point of view uh, than those to which we are usually subject in the United States. Let me call your attention to one interesting thing. We have here three severe critics of American foreign policy, none of whom managed to mention the word Bush during the entire remarks <laughs> that they have made. That's called diplomacy, the Consul General. So I call your attention to the finesse and elegance of our speakers while at the same time communicating some very profound ideas. Two which I would like to call your attention to today in my comments on their remarks are first, uh, the importance of uh, Consul General Kohru's remarks about the role of Islam in the United States and what I consider to be, uh, to give him his due, uh, the successful treatment of this faith by President Bush, who has been basically in the forefront of his public remarks about the importance of recognizing uh, the, the standing of Islam as one of the three great monotheistic faiths in this country and the need to welcome Muslims as full members of the American community. I contrast that with other members of his administration and especially with the outrageous behavior of the Department of Defense, which recently asked Franklin Graham, Rev, the Reverend Franklin Graham, the son of the Reverend Billy Graham, to conduct the Friday, Good Friday prayer service at the Pentagon, the very same individual who has stated publicly that Islam is a very evil religion. I invite you to imagine uh, how many Muslim religious leaders who declared Christianity to be a very evil religion would have been invited to have conducted a prayer breakfast or prayer meeting at the Pentagon? Uh, the second thing that you will have to think through as the future intellectual and political leaders of your countries and disciplines is, of course, the future of the U.S.-European relationship. And it is that to which I want to direct my attention because, of course, that is the subject of the day. First. I want to run through what I consider to be eight key points. First, the recognition of the profound and increasingly profound differences that exist between Europe and the United States. You heard of many of them today, the, the diminishment of national sovereignty in Europe represented by the increasing consolidation of the European project as contrasted to the increase in national sovereignty which our administration seems to suggest. Secondly, totally different views towards war, the benefits and consequences and costs of war. Thirdly, the far greater role of religion in the United States, the sense on the part of some of our senior leaders that they are indeed on a mission from the Lord, uh, contrasted with the deep secularism of 
uh, Europe, and of course, finally, uh, the role of uh, a the role of Europe in its new incarnation as a power, economic, political, and financial, which can offer severe and serious challenges uh, to the United States. Secondly, increasing U.S. resentment uh, against the Europeans, and which has resulted, thirdly, in a, a profound and entirely disquieting bullying on the part of the United States towards its European allies. Uh, no question, as the Consul General mentioned, that the United States was bullying Turkey profoundly uh, before the vote in the Turkish Parliament, and there are many, many, many different indications of the extent to which the United States beat up on the Turks, one of which is to have sent 36 ships with all of the hardware which were necessary for the troops uh, who were waiting outside of Turkish ports in the unloading of significant amounts of material by military teams who are preparing the ports for the unloading of the material and the arrival of the troops. We saw the same thing in terms of Article 5 of uh, the uh, willingness of European NATO members to invoke the Common Defense Treaty and the resistance of the American government to that. And when the article was invoked, the refusal of the United States to accept any meaningful assistance from any European state, for example, in particular in the war in Afghanistan. You heard about the German peacekeeping troops, which are so many in number, in particular in Afghanistan. The United States has made those German peacekeeping troops remain bottled up entirely within the capital city of Kabul, not allowing them outside of the city so that American troops could have free reign in the rest of Afghanistan to do whatever it is the United States wanted to do. You heard about the development of a U.S. new military strategy, the doctrine of preemptive war, which the United States uh, did not consult with its allies on before adopting. And most important, and this is my fourth point, I call your attention to U.S. thinking about Iraq and its utter and total failure to consult with any allies in the development of its strategy or tactics. Remember that President Bush decided to make war against Iraq sometime between October of 2001 and the beginning sometime either January, February of 2002. It isn't clear when the President made up his mind, but troops began to be sent to the Persian Gulf in the beginning of 2002, and every one of us who followed that knew that those troops who would number 250,000 by the spring of 2003 would have to be used in the spring of 2003 or would have to be sent home because you are not going to leave the American armed forces in Iraq with a temperature of 130 degrees in July of the summer of 2003. Nonetheless, the, the American government claimed that its policy was disarmament and therefore set in motion an entire process of UN inspection, Security Resolution 1441, when in fact the goal of the government of the United States was always regime change and never disarmament. So in short, the governments of Europe quite appropriately felt used by the government of the United States, bullied by the United States, and never consulted anywhere near as equals. Fifth, therefore, there has been no consultation between the United States and its so-called allies. Apparently, they're not allies in the minds of the president. And therefore, there is no mutual trust remaining. So the question is, now what? 
My own belief is that President Bush is going to back off the confrontation that we have seen with Europe for a variety of reasons, and you've heard some of them today, profoundly economic and financial consideration. Uh, the United States is running a current account deficit this year of record proportions, never before seen in the world in dollar terms, $500 billion. That means that non-U.S. citizens must put into the American economy net every single working day of every single working week in the year, $2 billion net. Five days a week, 250 weeks a year, $2 billion a day net into the American economy. Europeans are the largest holders of U.S. portfolio investments. U.S. and European companies are the largest investors in the American economy. So Europeans hold more portfolio investments, and European companies own more foreign direct investment than any other foreign entities. And that's where the money has come from. It's not just that the money comes there to finance our high living lifestyle, it is also that the Europeans buy tremendous amount of goods made in the United States. The United fully 25% of all U.S. exports are bought in Germany and France alone. So 25% of all American exports, which constitute something like 12% of the gross national product in the United States, are bought by Europeans and Germans. In short, the United States government may not need the military cooperation of European states, but it sure needs uh, their economic cooperation. The second thing we need from Europe, of course, my seventh point, is that U.S. empire, which is a subject of great debate these days, if you're conscious and on this planet, uh, U.S. empire cannot work without multilateral cooperation. You can take your own position on U.S. empire, and you might want to read the interesting article by Niall Ferguson in last Sunday's New York Times Magazine, which if you have not seen, you can still get for nothing online at nytimes.com, but do it quickly, because after a week it gets expensive. You can decide for yourself on the future American empire, uh, but the reality is no one believes it is possible for the United States to create an empire and administer it without the cooperation of Europe. And my final and eighth point is, and this is what I always want to leave every uh, American audience with thinking about, is that the defense budget of the United States in the year 2004, fiscal 2004, which means this year, the defense budget of the United States before supplemental appropriations, which already number $80 billion, regular defense budget is $400 billion. $400 billion is equal to the combined defense budgets of the next 23 largest spenders on military in the world. But $400 billion is not a huge amount of money in relationship to the size of the American GDP. It's less than 4% of the size of the economy of the United States. And at the height of the Reagan military buildup in the 1980s, we were spending 6.2% of our economy on the military. So we can afford this expensive military. Indeed, with foreign credits. Say that again? With foreign credits. With foreign credits. Well, $202 billion a day helping to finance this whole game. So we can afford this uh, military. What I want to call your attention to is not the size of the military budget, but the size of all U.S. government 
non-military spending in relationship to this defense budget. If you add together everything that the United States government spends abroad, non-military, which is to say the State Department, the embassies, the consulates, all the foreign aid which we give to foreign governments, all the money that's tr transferred abroad, all the propaganda of the government of the United States, the Voice of America, Radio Free Europe, Radio Marti in Cuba, the World Trade Organization, the Bank for International Settlements, the Peace Corps, the UN budget. When you add all that stuff together, it comes out to $26 billion. So we have a military budget of $400 billion before supplemental appropriations. We have a non-military international affairs budget of $26 billion. And so my point, ladies and gentlemen, about these disparities is two. One, none of my students in the business school who want to go to work for, for the government of the United States of America want to go to work for the State Department. Because the talent, the money, and the possibility of doing anything in the government of the United States are not there. They're in the Defense Department, which has the resources and the best brains in the, in the government of the United States, or the CIA, which is much more interesting than the State Department. And the second point I would make for you, to you all is when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Thank you. <laughs>